And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. The topic of today's morning show is suicide. And we're talking about suicide today because of a very special event that is coming up this Sunday, September 1st. It's the Labor of Love Music Festival in New Munster, presented by a nonprofit that organized 10 years ago around the issues of suicide and suicide prevention. The group is called Just Live. I spoke with several representatives from Just Live on Friday's morning show. And if you missed that conversation, you can hear it via the morning show archive found on WGTD's website, WGTD.org. By the way, the headlining group for Sunday's Music Festival is a fine bluegrass band by the name of Trampled by Turtles. And I have recorded an interview with their mandolin player, uh, Eric Berry, also a charter member of the group, and that interview will air this Thursday. Today on the morning show, from the archives, you'll hear a conversation which I recorded back in 2010 with best-selling author David Vaughn, talking about a book in which he, in his own unique way, very sensitively approaches the topic of suicide. Here's that interview. We occupy ourselves for the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with a most intriguing book, which is called Legend of a Suicide, Stories, written by award-winning author David Vann, who is a professor at the University of San Francisco. Perhaps you have seen the contributions he's made to The Atlantic, Men's Journal, National Geographic Adventure, uh, Esquire, and, and so on. And he... Uh, wrote the best-selling memoir, A Mile Down, The True Story of a Disastrous Career at Sea, also Last Day on Earth, a portrait of the NIU school shooter. Uh, he is uh, responsible for a book which is now available in, uh, in paperback uh, in which he touches on the topic of suicide springing from a troubled life. And uh, in the most direct sort of way, this book springs out of... Uh, the heartbreak of David Van losing his own father to suicide when David was 13 years old. He has made the decision to write about that uh, in the arena of fiction rather than nonfiction. And uh, the result is a very powerful story, which actually, of course, ventures beyond the specifics of his own father's troubles and uh, his uh, suicide. And, uh, and in doing so, it really touches on uh, many different themes which uh, are likely to resonate powerfully with a wide array of readers. This is a paperback from Harper and again called Legends of a Suicide, and I'm very pleased that for the next few minutes I can speak with David Van about his very, very fine book, winner of the Grace Paley Prize. David Van, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. And uh, we should mention that you have a website, uh, davidvan.com, and Van has two N's. Uh, what do you teach at the University of San Francisco? I teach creative writing, both fiction and nonfiction. And uh, I wonder if you could speak, first of all, about that intersection between teaching others to write and uh, being yourself a writer. How does one uh, venture feed the other? Well, I teach at University of San Francisco where it's an MFA in writing program and has really small class size, 6 to 12 students. So it's great. The workshops are small, uh, groups of really motivated writers who are working on books of their own and, and often very powerful material. 
And I, I really love class time, and I, I feel like it feeds my own writing because it makes me uh, go back and reread uh, the works that have been most useful for me and reread those more carefully and, and talk about them with a group of people. And it also lets me see what, what a bunch of other people are doing. So I, I think it, it makes me less uh, just inwardly focused to, to have that kind of contact. Um, it, it's hard, of course, to, to say exactly how to write. Uh, a book uh, to a group of students, it, it's impossible, really, uh, because I think for each writer, they discover they own, their own best form uh, for their particular material. And so it's uh, my role as teacher is not to tell people how to do stuff, but really to, to help facilitate them in, in, in their process of figuring out how to, how to write their work. When did writing first become important to you? And then at what point did it start to become ultimately your life's vocation? I was writing as a as a kid, even before I could write. My my mom would ask me to tell stories about squirrels, and then she would write them down. So I think she was very encouraging from early on. So that's when I was, you know, four years old and such. And after that, I I started writing every uh, uh, for every Christmas. I would give out a collection of stories as a present to the family on laminated pages with illustrations. Uh, one year, the story collection was called North to Alaska, and had all of our adventures in Alaska including catching big fish and when we went rafting down a river and we all almost died. And it was, a, it was kind of a collection of adventure stories uh, each, each Christmas. And I, I actually wrote a version of the first story that's in Legend of a Suicide in seventh grade. It, it was called One Who Lied, and it was about trashing the neighbor's house across the street with the contents of their refrigerator. Um, and uh, it had a very different focus than the story has now <laughs> in mm. the book. But, but, I, but I've always known that I wanted to be a writer and, and that I loved writing and telling stories. And I also had a sense that uh, stories were important uh, for families, uh, for defining how we think about each other and our connections to each other and how we think about ourselves, and that stories were in place. We had a hunting ranch that we went back to every fall, and as we'd walk through the different parts of, of that place, uh, my dad or uncle or grandfather or their friends would tell stories of what happened in each place and who was there at that time. And so our entire family history was actually in a place, and it was the stories were retold each year. So that always stuck with me, the idea that, that stories are about place. And so this book, Legend of a Suicide, is set in southeast Alaska uh, near Ketchikan, where I grew up, and with that rainforest. And it really is born out of that place. Hmm. You are writing ultimately uh, out of the uh, experience of losing your father to suicide when you were uh, 13 years old. And um, first of all, when, uh, when you are asked the question at the end of the book in, in, a, in, a, in a brief little interview, um, why, you were, why you felt compelled to write this book, uh, you gave a really interesting answer, which uh, involved some experiences of, of others in your family. Tell us what some of them experienced and, in a sense, the hunger which that left in place for you. Well, uh, in my family, uh, everyone had a different version of what had happened to my father. Um, so each of us had a different story about who he was and and why uh, his suicide happened, and none of those stories matched up. They, there was no uh, one story that you could sort of believe in and, and, and think was true. And so uh, the, the experience was essentially fragmented and confusing in that way. And so I think that uh, telling a, a group of stories uh, with a long novel 
that all kind of reflect on each other and in some ways contradict each other. I think that was really the only form um, that I could use to to tell the story. Uh, but my family's had uh, several suicides. There's not only my father's suicide, but um, 11 months before that, my stepmother's uh, parents, uh, her mother uh, killed her father and then killed herself. And, and, um, and so that, I guess, was a particularly disturbing um, set of experiences for me to think about because my father was so culpable. My, my stepmother had just gone through that tragedy with her parents, and she told my, my dad not to do this to her again, as, as she could see he was heading that way toward the end. Uh, but he, he killed himself while talking on the phone with her and made her go through that again. And, um, and that part seemed particularly cruel. So um, I, I felt an enormous amount of shame about his suicide after, just the violence of it, and it felt like it was a shameful, dirty thing that transferred to me and made me dirty also. And so for three years, I didn't tell anyone anything about him. I, I told everyone that he died of cancer and wouldn't say that he, he killed himself. And, and so I guess it was out of that, that shame and not telling his story for years and then out of the confusion of all the different versions of the story that my family had, um, that was really why I felt impelled to, to write the book, because I, I felt like I had to at, at some point. As you uh, set about writing this book, uh, I think you say in the acknowledgments that uh, this was something that could be potentially very uncomfortable for your family. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a moment about that facet of this experience? I mean, this experience of, of, of writing a book, which was a reflection of your father's suicide. Did you go to your family members, for instance, and ask for their permission or just sort of tell them you were doing this? or And did they walk with you through this? I mean, what was their involvement and how were they affected by this? Well, I, I talked to all my family members about it and, and tried to to get to know them and to find out what they thought of my father and of what had happened and how they made sense of it. And so it, it was a really good process in that way, uh, talking with each of them. Um, and my stepmother in particular was really helpful. Uh, I think she maybe understood my father best and it had the most tragedy in her life also and, and maybe was the most clear-headed in thinking about all of it, having been through it more than once. Um, and my mother has always been incredibly supportive, and, and she just figures if the mother in a story is someone she doesn't like, that it's not her. And that if there is something nice about a mother, that it's her. <laughs> mm. so, and, and really, the, the mother is a, is a lighter figure in this, in this book. It's not really about her as much as about my dad. And, um, and she comes out pretty well anyway. So um, uh, my sister is mostly not in the book, um, and she's always been supportive of, of the whole thing. Uh, the one sort of negative experiences I, I had about it was uh, my grandmother found it disturbing to read and and, and, um, and told me that it it's too bad that I grew up not respecting my father and I should turn to Jesus. And and so that was that was a bummer because I felt like she didn't really read the story and, and think about what I was doing because of course I did respect my father and love him and I still love him thirty years after the suicide and, and that, that love for him doesn't go away and, and so um, anyway, I felt like she misunderstood <laughs> the, uh, the the book, but I but I think it was it's uncomfortable for everybody. My uncle, my dad's brother, um, he read the the stories early on, but but uh, you know I think he was upset just to think about that time. And uh, each of us had a legacy of guilt left over as part of why it's difficult to think about him. So for me, 
my dad asked me if I would come live with him in Alaska for the next school year, which would have been eighth grade. And I said no. And then two weeks later, he killed himself. So afterward, I, of course, wondered if I had said yes to going up there, would he have still be, would he still be alive? And then my uncle had the same. Um, oh, and I, I should just say about that that the long novel in the in the um, middle of this book, Legend of Suicide, uh, takes that fact that I said no to going up uh, with my father and spins it a different way. There's a novella or, or short novel where um, the boy and his father go homesteading out in southeast Alaska for a year, and so that's really the boy saying yes. So one reason I told this in fiction is it, it was kind of a fulfillment of all the stuff that didn't happen. Um, but, sorry, going back to my uncle, uh, the guilt that he had was that uh, he was, es- was supposed to escort my father back up to Alaska on the last trip. The therapist had said, go with him, don't leave him alone, separate his guns and shells. And uh, they were at the airport together. My uncle had his ticket, but then my dad talked him out of it and, and convinced him that he was fine. And so my uncle felt tremendous guilt after that and and went into depression for about 15 years afterward. I mean, there are these really kind of terrible legacies that are left after any suicide. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with David Van, and the book is called Legend of a Suicide. And this is a series of different fictional stories, but spring out of the real-life heartache of David Van losing his father to suicide when David was just 13 years old. I've done uh, several different interviews related to the question of, of suicide. And uh, in one of those, I remember the author saying something intriguing about suicide that I want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if this felt like your own experience. Uh, This particular uh, woman, in writing about uh, the suicide of her own father, actually, said something to the effect that when when one commits suicide, uh, it is in such a, a terrible way, an utter erasure of everything that you were and 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 an erasure of of what everybody thought you were or who or, or of who people thought you were that people walk away just thinking we never knew you 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 weren't the person that we thought you were except that in her case the the suicide was in many respects tremendously surprising uh, I wonder in the case of your father when he committed suicide did you have any of those feelings like Oh my gosh! Who were you? How did we? How did we miss this? Were you? Was all of this a facade, or was it more of a suicide that, in a terrible sort of way, inevitably sprang out of uh, the troubles which he experienced? I think that's a great question. I think everyone's experience of of suicide bereavement is a bit different. Uh, you know, especially depending on who the the person was and and the circumstances of it. It certainly came as a complete shock, what my father did. I, I was too young to really see it coming, even though I knew he was depressed. And and it certainly um, changed everything in my world. Uh, nothing mattered to me anymore once that happened, and it took a long time to have the world start to matter again. Um, but I didn't really have a, a disconnection in, in thinking about how is this possible uh, and how does it connect to who he was. I guess over time, as I understood more and more about him, uh, there was more and more about his life that made sense for how he could have ended up at that that place of suicide. Um, uh, most suicides are uh, depressed or bipolar, 
And uh, sadly, it's actually fairly treatable. 80 to 90% of people treated for depression respond positively. So usually there are warning signs, and it does connect to the person's life. And, uh, you know, some intervention earlier on um, with recognizing that suicide and, or, or sorry, that depression and treating it um, can actually, uh, you know, help prevent suicides. But, but I think that even if it if it seems possible and someone seemed depressed, I don't think we can ever get to the point where we understand why it was inevitable, because I don't think it ever is inevitable. I think at any moment, at the end, my father could have understood and could have seen that his life still had lots of, of possibilities and opportunities, ways that he could have reshaped his life. And, and that's, to me, the sad thing is that my father didn't see that. He didn't see other options at the end. He felt so closed in. Um, so he was having trouble financially, for instance, but uh, you know, I wish he had seen that that was only money and that over time that could change. And he had had uh, two marriages he broke up through infidelity, but I wish he could have seen that that's behavior, you know, his own behavior, that maybe he could have changed in some way and, and, and some other relationship could have worked out differently. And of course, I, I, I wish that he would have seen that I loved him and my sister loved him and, and that that should have been enough, that it should have been enough to stay for us. Um, I, I think that when someone gets to that point of suicide, they're pretty far gone into depression, and I think it's it's hard for them to think realistically about the effect it'll have on other people, and I think that it's possible also for them to uh, come up with fantasies in their head about that somehow their passing might even be better for the people left behind. I know my dad had some kind of thought that his life insurance would help us out and maybe we'd be better off in some way. So I think that uh, when someone gets that depressed, I think that they don't think straight in some ways, and, and they come up with, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with reasons that aren't very good. And so in that way, it could be difficult to connect them uh, to who they had been. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I didn't have such a disconnect on this. I, I did see that when I wrote about the Northern Illinois University school shooter, Steve Kazmierczyk, there was a big disconnect between who he was at the end with the with the shooting of, of and killing of five others, plus himself and wounding of many, uh, a disconnect between who he was then and who he'd been over the previous five years, so none of his professors or friends could make any sense of the event. But then if you went back more than five years to his high school and junior high friends, you could see that he actually was reverting to who he'd been before, and it made tremendous sense for who he was. Again, not inevitable, but you could see all these patterns leading toward it. Um, so that's a book I have coming out a year and a half from now called Last Day on Earth, a portrait of the NIU school shooter, Steve Kazmierczyk. Hmm. That uh, school, by the way, is not located very far from our radio station. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really hope you and I will have the opportunity to uh, speak about that book yeah, when it becomes definitely. available. That's uh, a, an important, powerful story as well. Um, at the time that your father committed suicide, at that time and in that particular place in Alaska, um, was it possible for you to share about this with anybody? You've already mentioned the fact that you, f you felt such shame that you pretended that he had died of cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, were there any avenues by which you, and for that matter, any of you in your family, could share freely and openly about what had happened and what you were feeling about what had happened? No, we we had a hard time talking with each other because uh, we were all kind of suffering differently and and had different stories that didn't match up, uh, and we're kind of afraid to talk about the whole thing. I think, and uh, and my mother was a school counselor, so she um, 
made the understandable mistake of thinking that that was her field. And so since she was a counselor, she would be able to tell whether I really needed help or not. And she judged that I was fine and, and didn't need help because I was still getting straight A's and involved in all school activities and such. So um, I ended up developing a double life where I got straight A's by day and everything seemed fine. But then at night, I had inherited all my father's guns, which seems to be an incredibly stupid thing that my family gave me all of his guns after his suicide. So I had a 300 Magnum rifle, which is a rifle for bears, and I had a 3030, uh, which is like the rifle in westerns, and I had a 12 gauge shotgun and a 20 gauge shotgun, and um, just a whole arsenal in my closet as a 13 year old just after my father's suicide. So. I developed this double life where I would sneak out at night with the guns and I'd shoot out street lamps and sight in on the neighbors. And luckily, I never hurt anybody. Uh, but I, I was, uh, that was an, a, an incredibly out of control and scary kind of time leading that double life. And the double life came about because there was no one I could talk to about what was going on. And so I think instead of talking with someone, I ended up having the guns be this, this really awful substitute for dealing with that in some other way. I just shot stuff. Um, which seems to me the the worst possible way to try to get through the suicide in the years after. Hmm. So you ultimately, obviously, emerge through at least the worst of this period of sort of reeling from your father's suicide. Uh, even all these years later, and I actually haven't stopped to count just exactly how long ago your father's suicide was. Can you remind me? It's uh, It was 30 years uh, last month. We had the 30-year anniversary last month. Wow. 30 years later, what are kind of the emotional and mental repercussions for you? Well, suicide bereavement is such a long and, and awful and complicated process, uh, uh, which luckily does kind of pass over time. So uh, at first, there's tremendous uh, denial. Uh, it's just hard to believe that, that it could happen, that it could happen to me or us. Um, it, it, I, I had a lot of nights, uh, I had about 15 years of insomnia was another part of the legacy. And for several years, I would lie awake at night and imagine that he wasn't actually dead because it was clear up in Alaska. And I was in California at that time with my mother and I didn't see a body. And so it was hard to believe that he was dead. And so I'd imagine that actually maybe he was a government agent and he was still running through the snow and the tundra and I would get to see him soon and it was some other body that had been found. And, you know, I, I had this kind of awful denial kind of imaginings. And I was also tremendously angry. We all felt this rage that he had left us and that he had done this to us and that he wasn't there anymore and didn't love us. And and then there was all the guilt from all the ways in which we felt that if we had done something different, maybe he wouldn't be dead. Um, and then the shame, just how awful and, and, and dirty the act was and how that transferred to us and, and made us somehow uh, flawed you know, in, in some terrible way that no one would, would want to be with us anymore. Um, and they're just, uh, in addition to that insomnia for 15 years and those other feelings, too, I had this sense for 20 years of doom, really, that, that uh, someday if I ever got depressed enough and I got to a low enough point in my life, that maybe I'd repeat what my father did. And that, that was a terrible sense that I really had for 20 years, and it was just like doom. It was something at the back of my mind that was just there kind of waiting for me. And, and that was maybe the worst part of the legacy for me. And it took hitting a low point in my life and actually losing everything to get to understand that I had no interest in killing myself. I'd hit an absolute low point, and it wasn't even an option for me. I wasn't even thinking about the possibility of suicide. 
and I, I couldn't even have a suicidal thought. And, and that was so great to find that out. I, so it was a real low point in my life, but it came a real high point in my life because I just thought, God, I'm free to that legacy. Like, I'm not going to be like my father. I'm not him. I'm not going to kill myself. And, and, um, I was, I was just, sorry. I, I, uh, that still has power for me that thinking about that because it was like such a long uh, doom. But um, so anyway, that 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 all finally passed. Um, and for the last ten years or so, uh, what amazes me is that all I feel for him now is just the love for him. If I, you know, come across a photo that I, I didn't think I'd come across or think of him in some way that surprises me, then I still feel. Um, uh, you know, powerful sense of love for him, like when I was 13. And that really surprises me. And I, I like that that's the part that stays. Hmm. We're speaking with David Van, and we are talking about his book, Legend of a Suicide Stories. Uh, we need to start talking about some of these uh, wonderful stories. And one of the things that surprised me is that when I saw the, the word stories on, on the cover, I assumed that uh, as I opened this book, it would be a series of short stories, and each one very similar to the other in, in, in length and tone and so on. And I was really surprised, uh, and, and ultimately I'll say delighted, that in fact this group of, 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 of stories is a little more of a, a motley crew, let's say. I mean, yeah. I mean that, that, is the, that one story is not at all like the other. And, uh, and you've already mentioned the, the sort of short novel that's right in the middle of them all. Mm-hmm. That is really like none of the others. Uh, I just wonder if you could speak for a moment about that, and if that was, in a sense, a deliberate choice on your part uh, to not have these stories be sort of neatly lined up, uh, or, or, or if in fact you wanted this to be this kind of intriguing assortment of of stories, and, and in a sense, writing styles. Yeah, it was actually a mistake where the copy editor just put stories on at the end. That the whole book is supposed to hold together, where the pieces are all read together and in this order, and so they're not supposed to be considered a story collection. It's not quite a novel, so I'd prefer that it's just not called anything, not called a novel or stories. Um, but it's, it, as you said, it's in these pieces that all reflect on each other, and and they're meant to work together in that way. So no piece stands fully on its own. It depends on the other pieces to to fully make sense. So there's an enormous surprise that happens halfway through the short novel, for instance, a huge reversal. And I I didn't see that coming until I wrote that sentence. And in that way, the book came alive for me and surprised me and had pattern in it beyond my my conscious plans. And so uh, to me, that unconscious aspect of of the writing is what took off and and made the book uh, become something. And and part of that uh, unconscious pattern is the ways in which the different pieces relate to each other. So that together they provide a full view of what this fragmented experience was of of his suicide and, and going through it. And then of course they also try to evoke that place, that landscape of Southeast Alaska that's so mythic still in my imagination uh, where I was as a kid. Um, the title, Legend of a Suicide, actually comes from, I was reading Chaucer a lot, and the idea of a legend is a series of portraits, actually. So this, the, the title really means a series of portraits of a suicide, and those portraits are all supposed to come together to give you uh, one overall picture. Hmm. And in a sense, I mean, although these, these it, it feels like these stories are not always necessarily about exactly the same people. And uh, and it and they do not follow a strict narrative arc, 
mm-hmm. uh, one to one to the next. Right. By no means. And yet you're absolutely right. They all contribute to, in a sense, a, a, a deeper understanding of perhaps what happened to you, of perhaps what your father was feeling, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, 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 and stokes our imagination very, very powerfully. Mm-hmm. Thank if you. If there's a thread which we follow through these various stories, it is uh, you trying to grapple with exactly who your father was and the fact that he was this intriguing mix of of talents and possibilities and deep flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, speak a moment about that, about the complexity of who your father was, and particularly what it felt like for you all these years later uh, to, ascent, in a sense, be creating a portrait of him in this way. He was a dentist who really just wanted to hunt and fish. He wanted to be a fisherman, and so he lived in Alaska, and he actually built a commercial fishing boat and went to sea and became a, a captain and fisherman for a while. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, they were in the Bering Sea in March, chopping ice off of the off of the boat and had their long line for halibut snag and the drum crumple, and they almost died. And uh, he was out there fishing with my uncle. And so he had had a kind of failed dream there, and that was really his last attempt before suicide to remake his life into something else. And I, I gained a lot more sympathy for him, I guess, and understanding when I, I went to sea and had my own uh, failures and, and disappointments and storms and losses and sinking and everything as, as a captain at sea. So in some ways in my life, I've actually done things to kind of relive parts of his life, to understand him better. I, I, mean, I don't think that's too extreme to say. I think I actually did that without consciously meaning to do it. I didn't set out and plan to repeat his failures, but I ended up doing it. And I, I think I wanted to get closer to him and to understand him. In terms of who he was more personally, he was a, a wonderful father who always made it clear he loved me and my and my sister, but he was an, an awful husband, and, and he just uh, uh, couldn't be faithful and uh, and and couldn't figure out what marriage was really about, I think. And, and so that's part of the flaw for him. I grew up all with women um, in my family. We have like uh, 11 women in my family who are unmarried, and, and uh, so understanding my father, I think, came from this perspective of growing up with women and seeing all the women in my family try to understand men. So I think that that's part of the the boy's attempt to understand the father here, is that the father seems to come from sort of a, a, a different world uh, than, than all the other one, uh, you know, family that the boy's hanging out with. I really loved the, the short novel uh, in which you, in a sense, imagine what it would have been like if you had said yes to your father's invitation to come live with him for a year in Alaska, <laughs> and if that, in a, in turn, would have taken you out into the uh, Alaskan wilderness. You <laughs> paint for us a very vivid portrait of how such a thing might indeed play out. And in particular, what, what I especially love is in this story that your father has, the, in a sense, the audacity to take himself and you out into the Alaskan wilderness with very little uh, in, in way of provisions and <laughs> probably more <laughs> more desperately to the point with not enough know-how. <laughs> right. Mostly uh, um, courage and guts and, and uh, foolhardiness, and, right. and that's not necessarily enough to really navigate that. Um, you, you describe it at one point in this way, Roy, that would be uh, the son, felt there was a kind of leveling, neither knew what to do 
and both would have to learn. I mean, this, mm-hmm. uh, tell us a little more about where this idea came from and how you seem to so vividly imagine what it would have been like to try to make a living for yourselves and survive the Alaskan wilderness, you and someone like your father. I, I, it's actually one part I really loved about my father, this kind of recklessness almost, that, that he would just try things, you know, that he went to sea and tried to become a commercial fisherman without having experience in that, and that uh, one time he bought a, a river raft and took us down a Class 5 Alaskan river, in which we almost lost three generations of our family uh, as we hit these six-foot six foot standing waves, and he really didn't have the experience to know what to do, and we just get, got pummeled all the way down that river. Um, but there was something I, I liked about that. There's also something, of course, edgy and dangerous and, and um, about that, which also speaks to his suicide, finally, in some way. So there's both a positive and, and negative aspect to that. Um, but for trying to imagine what that was like homesteading out there, I was really drawing on Ketchikan, where I grew up as a kid. It was this rainforest, and it still remains mythic in my imagination, uh, because as a kid, as a four-year-old running around that forest, I would imagine that wolves and bears were chasing me, and we actually had wolves and bears. It was such a great place. And there was so much uh, deadfall of the various trees and stuff that had fallen on the floor that it created a second floor um, uh, in the forest. And as a kid running along, I could fall through that and just fall into darkness into about a four-foot pit of, of hitting the real forest floor. And and that also was, was kind of amazing. Um, and stuck with me, and, and just all the plants, like, uh, you know, huge uh, spiny uh, devil's club and, and these strange waxy flowers, and and uh, we caught enormous fish, like the uh, first salmon I caught, king salmon, was taller than I was, and my grandfather caught a 250-pound halibut. And this halibut, I guess, serves pretty well as a metaphor for imagination and for what that Alaskan landscape does for me. It was so big, 250 pounds, that you can't pull it up with the rod and reel, just doing the reel. You have to go fingertip by fingertip on the fishing line so it can't feel that it's moving. And you just bring it up inch by inch off the bottom. And as a kid looking down at the water, waiting for that to appear, and then finally seeing it, and then having it just grow larger and larger and larger as it came up, seemed like how something imagination seems like, sorry, a metaphor for how imagination comes to the surface and comes to life. And then it was just such a beast at the surface. And and uh, and my father shot it six times and, and then brought it on board. And so it had all of the kind of attendant violence and stuff that, that we always had there in Alaska in that landscape. But but uh, it was really a, a, an amazing place. And so Suquan Island, where that novel is set, is an island I've never actually been to uh, because I wanted it to be the landscape of imagination. But it's only 50 miles away from Ketchikan, where I grew up in that great forest and with all those fish. And so it was writing about home and, and the landscape that speaks to me most. Hmm. You have one scene in which uh, it, this is early on in the experience as the father and son are struggling to 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 build something maybe in which to store dry wood or something or other but anyway you, the father is saying this it's not like fairbanks here everything has a different feel i think maybe i've been in the wrong place for too long i'd forgotten how much i like being by the water and how much i like the mountains coming right up like this and the smell of the forest fairbanks is all dry and the mountains are only hills and every tree is the same as every other tree it's all paper birch and spruce pretty much endless i used to look out my window and wish i could see some other kind of tree i don't know what it is but i haven't felt at home for years haven't felt a part of any place i've been something's been missing but i have a feeling 
that being here with you is going to fix all that. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? And then you have the son, uh, Roy, looking at him. Yeah, he said, but he didn't. He didn't know at all <laughs> what his father was really saying or why he was going on like that. And what if things didn't work out the way his father was saying they were going to work out? What then? I'm so intrigued by this because I think probably what prompts you to write this, as you said before, is this sense of what if? What if I had said yes to my father and this invitation from him? What if, in fact, we had spent this time together in Alaska? But you are imagining it not in the rosiest, optimistic sort of sense. Yeah, I think that there was always a tremendous sense of... uh that for anyone, there's a sense of doom whenever someone wants to remake their life and they want you to help them do that. <laughs> you know, usually that 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 project doesn't work out. And and I think that my dad, toward the end of his life, really did have this this uh, these attempts to remake himself, and that he hadn't felt at home and and hadn't felt like he belonged in his life in some way. That his life didn't fit who he was. Um, and so that's a terrible kind of sense uh, for for someone to have. And and in the novella, the boy is the one who's supposed to somehow fix that. And so the boy comes under more and more pressure. And and uh, and as a writer, I actually didn't see where that was going. That 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 piece really surprised me. Um, and but looking back, I could see um, that there's there's all these pressures building in in the, in that relationship because the boy, of course, can't save the father, which is really the answer to what would have happened if I had went up there. Uh, for a year, you know, everyone feels guilt after a suicide, but the truth is, none of us are actually responsible. That the person who killed themselves is responsible. Hmm. And of course, what what really makes this story so powerful is that as you paint this picture of this troubled father, he is not he is not without merit, not without redeeming qualities. I mean, there are things about him that we deeply admire and find exciting and find laudable. And, uh, and he's not a complete idiot. I mean, he knows a lot. He just doesn't know quite enough to really make this uh, trip to the wilderness work out all that well. But I mean, yeah, and his main problem is that he's running from something. You know, he, he figures stuff out well enough. I mean, they end up with more food than they need to get through the winter. But, uh, but he's he's running from the the daily despair of just how to get through the day. He doesn't know how to live on his own. He doesn't know how to live with the the two wives that he's had because he keeps being unfaithful to them. So he's uh, he hasn't found any kind of of sense of of who he can be and how he can be in the world. And so he's just trying to fill his days with all this food gathering and survival through the winter and stuff uh, as a way of of not dealing with anything else. It's a remarkable um, short novel, and in many respects, my favorite part of the book. Uh, in one of the other sh- uh, shorter stories called The Higher Blue, mm-hmm. uh, this is a son uh, trying to come to terms with his father. And uh, I love a moment when they are talking and having a, a typically somewhat awkward conversation. And um, the father is being evasive about certain things that the son would really like to talk about, like Mm -hmm. past mistakes and so on. And the father would rather talk about hunting trips of the past. And at one point he he recalls some of the stories his son had told him about shooting deer and shooting wild boar and so on. And, uh, And the son thinks this to himself as they're sharing these stories. Neither the buck nor the boar 
had ever existed, of course. I had fired that shot into blank air. The pig also had been born alchemically of boredom, pride, fancy, and innate terror. I wonder if, uh, if, if you are, uh, in a sense, writing autobiographically there when, yeah. uh, when you uh, talk of, of, of coming up with these kind of images and stories of things that never really happened. Yeah, I I shot my first two deer at 11 um, one weekend, and that was really disturbing to me, uh, seeing them afterward uh, with their eyes open. And, and uh, I, I think I wasn't as much a hunter as my, my father would have wanted me to be. And so afterward, I started missing real deer and started shooting at imaginary deer. Uh, so I'd, I'd get really excited and imagine that there was a deer, uh, you know, down below us crossing the glade, for instance, and uh, if I was hiking separately from my father, and I would actually feel the pounding of blood in my temples, the buck fever that we called it, just like there was a real deer, and I'd take several shots, and my father and uncle would come running, and then we'd try to track it, and I'd have the story of how it leapt, and maybe the bullet went underneath it, and, and uh, we'd track it for hours, and of course not find anything. And uh, this happened once, pig hunting, when I was too young, uh, actually before I'd killed deer, before I could carry a rifle. Um, uh, my father and uncle left me up on a ridge uh, with just a pair of binoculars looking down. I was so scared of these enormous wild pigs and this, all the stories about them that I actually went up into the top of a small tree and imagined that there was a pig down below coming after me. And so I told the story to my father and uncle afterward. And um, and as far as I know, they always believed that that was true. So I came from this uh, family of telling stories about hunting and fishing. And, and for me, those included invented stories. And, and I, I wonder if for some of my other family members, some of the stories were invented too in that same story actually this is kind of our concluding thought probably you um you have this son and his mom kind of thinking about the uh in a sense the figure who represents your father and uh and uh she says the some things never learn if your father were a lemming he would climb back up the cliff just to go over it again it's just such a great picture but what i really want to read is are the next two lines perhaps we never were generous enough to the father a father after all is a lot for a thing to be are you really speaking very honestly in that moment about your own father and what you think uh, in regards to his suicide and the rest of you yeah, I think sometimes we, especially my sister and I, think, why weren't we enough? The fact that we loved him, why didn't he stay around? How could he have left us? And I think sometimes we forget all the struggles that he had and and uh, the degree to which he was a, a separate, a person separate uh, from us and had uh, other concerns, too. Um, and I think that everyone was so angry at him afterward that, that in some ways we weren't generous enough to uh, thinking about his suffering and and, um, and all the pressures that that he was under uh, various times so that it's a it's an epilogue that piece and it's in a different style but it's actually sincere what, what I'm saying in there and it also that story comes closest to the real events of his suicide which it has the time and place that, that it was up in Fairbanks Alaska he was just alone in his house after there have been a lot of other versions in the book of what might have happened, you actually get something a little closer to the truth at the end. Hmm. It's a book which really stays with us uh, long after we have put it down, after we have read it cover to cover. And uh, and uh, I very much recommend it to, to anyone who 
uh, is intrigued by not only the the notion of of, of suicide and it, and its effects on those who are left behind, but also f- uh, for anyone who cares about great writing and the possibility of of looking at real events in a real life through this particular prism. It is such an intriguing idea, and I think carried out beautifully. The book is Legend of a Suicide, uh, a paperback by Harper Perennial and the author David Van. David Van, I thank you so much for uh, writing this uh, sensitively crafted book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. I do appreciate it. Thank you. That's the best interview I've had. That was really smart. I loved your questions. I really appreciate being on your show. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. And we wanted to remind you about a special event coming up this Sunday, September 1st, out in New Munster. It is the Labor of Love Music Festival, an event sponsored by the nonprofit group Just Live, which was organized 10 years ago to help bring renewed awareness to the issue of suicide. And headlining Sunday's music festival will be the wonderful bluegrass band Trampled by Turtles. I had the pleasure of recording an interview with their mandolin player, Eric Berry, who is also a charter member of the group. And you can hear my interview with Eric Berry on Thursday's morning show. And by the way, if you would like more information about the Labor of Love Music Festival coming up on Sunday in New Munster, you can go to the website justliveinc.org. And that's just live and then I-N-C. So justliveinc.org. Dot org for more information about the 10th Anniversary Labor of Love Music Festival. Tomorrow on The Morning Show, I'm delighted to welcome back into our studios Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Clausen Center. We have Dr. Sear with us once a month to offer up his analysis of, of current events and issues. And on Wednesday's morning show, I'm very excited to share with you an interview recorded with Doug and Kim Instanis. Doug Instanis, artistic director of the Racine Theater Guild, and Kim Instanis, a member of the theater faculty at Carthage. Doug and Kim recently returned from a wonderful trip to Scotland, which included a visit to the Fringe Festival, one of the most important theatrical events in all the world. And I asked Doug and Kim to join me on the morning show to talk about some of what they saw and heard and experienced at the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland. And you'll hear that on Wednesday's morning show. I already mentioned Thursday's morning show with mandolin player Eric Berry. On Friday, you'll hear the interview which I recorded with Professor Ronald Rossbottom, a book called Sudden Courage, which examines the important resistance work of young people in France during the Second World War, young people resisting the encroachment of the invading Nazis. The book is Sudden Courage. The Morning Show airs every weekday morning between 8 and 9 o'clock. The program is archived on our website, wgtd.org. And we remind you that The Morning Show is now available as a podcast. Look for the title, The Morning Show with Greg Berg. It's available on every podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcast and Google Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and hear a different morning show seven days a week.